Welcome to Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Daisy Mayhem, the evil teen angel character in Scooby's All-Star Laugh Olympics, was voiced by Marilyn Schreffler, who also provided the voice of teen angel Brenda Chase. Like, that wasn't confusing at all. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seemed to, is writer and author Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch. Gabby, what you're up to, where can we find it? I'm up to writing all sorts of silly things. You can find me on Twitter at Scribbler if you like political shouting and gifts of cartoon characters that I fancy. I also do, speaking of that, a podcast called Curiously Drawn, where I speak to funny people from the world of comedy and publishing about three cartoon characters that they either had formative crushes on or still have crushes on. We have a little chat about sexuality and media representation and nostalgia and whatnot so that's wherever you cast your pods i also i've got a bunch of books out i've got a family-friendly comedy fantasy trilogy called the darkwood series that's suitable for ages about eight and up it's a little bit pratchety and i've also got a new trilogy that's a bit more for the grown-ups called the rooks books those are by farago books and they are available from all good bookshops and one evil bookshop okay well even allowing for the you know the very tolerant kind of one-size-fits-all or taste cater poor society we live in today i really hope that none of your guests on Curiously Drawn have ever chosen any of the characters from your first choice. You'll find out why in a minute. Mr. Men theme, but faster and with lyrics. Gabby, what was going on here? This is an LP I had when I was a kid. I think I had two LPs as a kid. One was singing with the band, which I think has been done on this. Yes, by Catherine Lowe, yeah. I loved singing with the band. So this is an LP of songs that were inspired by the Mr. Men TV series. It does have Arthur Lowe speak singing. That's generous, really. <laughs> Rhythmically speaking, Bill Shatner style through some songs. The thing is, when we started chatting about doing this, I was like, oh, I wonder if I can find this anywhere online. And I found out that the whole album is online. Just someone's just stuck it on YouTube, which is amazing because I still remember all of the words to this LP that I think I must have last heard in the mid 80s. <laughs> I, I can remember the song about sneezing, and there once was a pig about to go oink. And instead gave a big a tissue and a sheep about to go bar instead gave a deep a tissue. <laughs> There's a song about a beautiful song, but they're really nice songs. I was listening to it again and like, these are lovely songs. They're really pretty. The song about daydreaming. There's a song that's based on Mr. Snow. Oh, I remember the nosy, 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 nosy is who I am. But nevertheless, I must confess, nosy is what I am as well. Nosy is what I am. I saw an old lady. She was hanging out close, or poking my nose, and the next thing I know, she put a peg on my nose. Uh, so there's a song about Mr. Nosey getting his nose attacked. 
in various ways that I think is I think that's the closest to the canon that is just based on the Mr. Nosy story because he gets horrible things happen to his nose because he pokes his nose and lets see nose he gets painted on his nose there's a story about Mr. Bump just getting assaulted <laughs> Had actually, Arthur Lowe did make an attempt at singing that one because he goes, Mr. Bump, poor old Bump, he's a clumsy chap, a going bump into this and into that. And then there's this really angry sounding man who's actually, he reminds me of, if you've ever heard Margaret K. Bourne Smith's Billy's Navidad, which does the rounds every Christmas, why is just shouting like this? It's a voice like that. So you've got Arthur Lowe going, so be sure that you don't bump into him today you do he'll bump you out of his way and then this weird voice goes mr bump had a nasty bang bumped into a big fat man it has got big it's it this was recorded in 79 so i don't know if they were like trying to challenge a sort of weird sort of punk kind of thing <laughs> so it was before the young ones or anything like that <laughs> but yeah it's like the story's about he bumps to a big fat man which is a, like a little bit well, I mean, it's the 70s, so, you know, you can't really blame it for not being very PC. But, yeah, this man just, like, beats the shit out of him. <laughs> what were his other songs? There was one, the song at the start, which put lyrics to the Mr. Men theme yeah, tune. Yeah, I have a huge issue with this because it's called Let's Go to Misterland. Let's go to Misterland. The Land of Magic, apparently. No. I don't recall it being identified as Mr. Land in the books. And more to the point, don't they live in our world, not Mr. Land? Because whenever there's like a postman or anything, or you don't have to go to a shop or whatever, it's in the normal world. They're normal people. In fact, is it Mr. Small who like sees them, listen to a book about him and goes and sees Mr. Hargreaves and says, Oh, you! Where's my book? So, I'm sorry, that is not Mr. Land. That is reality. And it also claims that Mr. Land has Mr. Trains on Mr. Trucks. Mr. Clowns and Acrobats. Now, mm. when were they all in the Mr. Man? <laughs> They're just in the background. <laughs> Mr. Tracks. That is bleak, isn't it? Like, you can. Uh, Mr. Train, that's basically Thomas. And Mr. Clowns and Acrobats, fine. But Mr. Tracks is just. A DJ. Grim. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That would be a great name for a DJ. <laughs> and, no, I quite liked it. It's a really pretty song. It's a mystery trip, but a. But it, it felt like the people who wrote it, because it was written in like the late 70s, it felt like they were kind of channeling sort of late Beatles and maybe like a little bit of the Beach Boys. It felt like it had that sort of warm sort of round sound to it. <laughs> That makes it sounded round. And it's just got so, such fond memories of being one of the two records that were mine and my sister's because we were poor, we were poor growing up. <laughs> we didn't, well, I remember getting a telly. <laughs> That I think my parents rented, but they did have a record player. And my mum and dad had like all their records that turned out to be really cool by the time I was a teenager because they had like Beatles and Who and stuff like that. By the time I was like in my mid teens, it was the mid 90s and it was an incredibly cool thing to have original Beatles and Who LPs at that point with like Oasis being trendy and stuff like that. But yeah, these two albums that we had, and I can remember pretty much all of singing with the band as well these two novelty children's albums and when I listened to it online I was taken back and I was sent to such a warm happy place so yeah if you haven't heard it go and find it because it is it is actually delightful 
<laughs> but it does involve a lot of Arthur Lowe speak singing. Well, what really struck me about listening to it again, because this was an album I didn't get until much later, it was basically, it's funny you should bring the hearing the Beatles being quite cool in the mid-90s into it, because yeah. that's about when I got this, because I was running around looking for all kinds, you know, it was when the lounge core thing was happening, mm. records that had yeah. hidden groovy tracks, and I remember buying mm. this thinking there's got to be something on this, and there isn't really, but it's very charming in its own way, but, I mean, you were mentioning the, you know, the sort of sub-ELO stylings of it, really, I call mm. the whole musical approach. The first thing is, the music's written by Keith Mansfield, who did the Grandstand theme and the Wimbledon oh, wow! theme. So, but the words are written by Joe Campbell and Paul Hart, who did a lot of soundtrack work around this time, who also did the theme to Rockliffe's Babies, the late 80s gritty BBC detective drama, which oh. anyone of a certain age remembers, because it had kind of a screeching sax rock theme tune. <laughs> they kept breaking down into kids singing, Rockabye Baby, on the tower blog, Mum's on the social, Dad's in the dock, etc. <laughs> I just find the discrepancy between that and this is bizarre. Yeah. But the thing is, you mentioned the Mr. Daydream song, Daydreaming. Yeah. When I started listening to that, I thought, this reminds me of Forever Autumn from the War of the Worlds soundtrack. Yes! All of a sudden, they start going on about the autumn leaves. Yeah. And, you know, I was trying to work out, apparently this was from 1976, so Jeff Wayne may have heard this. But it was just such a strange thing to hear that, to suddenly be confronted with something so close to what I was thinking it sounded like. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that one's probably the prettiest of all the songs. It's really not, it just, it takes you through the seasons of the year and just takes a moment to marvel at the changing of the seasons and it tells you that the world is a wonderful place to daydream in. What a lovely thing to say to a child. There is a very strange thing with the Mr. Men, though, that they really just took off very, very quickly. But it felt like they'd always been there, even though the range kept expanding. And I remember seeing a slightly older kid had a copy of Mr. Happy where it had no Mr. Men on the back. It just had the oh. publisher's logo really big. It was like there was a Mr. Happy event horizon. <laughs> it was as if this universe of Mr. Men had existed all along. Well, Mr. Tickle was the first. Mr. Tickle is why the Mr. Men were invented, because I think Roger Hargreaves' son asked what a tickle looked like. I think it might be like the MCU in the Mr. Tickle is the Iron Man, but Mr. Happy is Captain America. So I, I think that they now sort of Mr. Tickle was the first Mr. Man, but they now place Mr. Happy as being the first in the in the MMCU. <laughs> Oh, I don't like the thought of there being a Mr. and Little Miss Cloak and Dagger. That's a bit... Yeah. <laughs> I remember getting... Well, I don't remember it very well, but there's a photo of me on my fourth birthday. My mum had made me a Mr. Happy Cake. By that point, they were so big that children were asking... Because in those days, you didn't go and buy an Xbox cake from the shop. If you wanted a novelty cake, one of your parents had to cook it. And so we were at the stage where I had asked my mum for a Mr. Happy Cake because they were that big. And also my mum was able to sort some sort of design to make it. But it was only the Mr. Men, though, because Roger Hargreaves kept trying to invent other things. I mean, on the previous mm. edition of this, Joanne Shepard talked about the Tim Book 2 books, which... Which I remember. You know, they were prominent, but they did just bomb. They went out of yeah. print very quickly. Little Miss eventually became quite a big thing, but they took mm. a couple of years to bed in. And I remember they repackaged the Mr. Men cartoons as Mr. Men and Little Miss with new yeah. Little Miss animation. And it did feel a bit kind of, you like this. <laughs> there were all kinds of other books he did, like the John Mouse book 
talked to him roundly and squarely. They just didn't take off. People mm. only wanted the Mr. Men. Why was that? I don't know. I think people like the concept of like a whole personality trait being a person. It must be that. They're lovely sort of simple books. My kids were really, really into them, especially my son, who for his first ever World Book Day when he was in reception, he went as Mr. Bump. We just like put him in blue and put some bandages on him. Yet they're still popular now. And yeah, I think it's just that sort of simple concept of a whole character to be an element of human nature. That's quite an old concept because if you go back to like the morality plays and stuff like that, <laughs> then you get characters who are, oh, hi, I'm lust, I'm greed. <laughs> Maybe they're sort of continuations of that whole sort of morality play, sort of the vices and the virtues are characters. Again, you've got characters that are supposedly good traits and you've got characters who are supposedly bad traits. And often the characters that are supposedly bad traits change and then they're right back to on their bullshit. By the time it's not their book anymore. <laughs> like Mr. Messy cleans up but by the time that he needs to be like a, a side character in another way he is messy as shit again it just didn't last doesn't Mr. Tickle literally just tickle people and then nothing happens yes that's because that's the first one I think in the first one he's got no redemption there, no there's no moral in the first one but in the first one he is just going this is what a tickle would be if a tickle was a person so yeah he has absolutely he's an amoral <laughs> <laughs> goes around like hangs out outside the school <laughs> and post puts his hands through the school window that's like three stories up and tickles children without their consent <laughs> This is like my theory about Fatty Fudge from the Beano, who I think is a statement on the human condition because he will do anything for, I say, a handful of sweets. It's normally three juggled by Minnie yeah. the Minx or somebody. And he can be persuaded to do anything. And his resemblance to somebody who is still the Prime Minister at the time of recording, uh. I don't think it's a coincidence. And at the end of that book, because there's no redemption or anything, he just, the, the end of the story is you might get a tickle. And at that point, obviously, the parent reading is supposed to tickle the child. But yeah, there's no moral to that at all. But if they didn't do that, wouldn't those kids just have been lying there terrified all night thinking Aww, <laughs> his arm was going to reach him? I think it's supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be funny and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I say we're moving into a very different kind of animation for your next choice, but to be honest, given what we're just saying about Mr. Tickle, it's kind of not that far removed from this. He's good looking, well dressed too, he looks rich. Oh, I'd love someone like that. Well, go on, ask him. Hello, I'm Alex. I'm Marcus. Can I get you another drink? You disgusting pervert. You will never believe what that monster is capable of. Oh, men! Okay, that was a sketch featuring Alex the Relationship Seeking Girl from BBC Three's Monkey Dust, a show that I'd more or less forgotten about. Gabby, it sounds like you remember it a lot more. Yeah, so this was on telly during my student years, so we would watch it quite a lot. It would be quite a sort of a bonding experience with friends. We did have the DVD, we sort of had a bit of a clear out DVDs because nobody uses DVDs anymore. But we did have the DVD for a while. Yeah, I was really sort of into it, probably more more than I was other sketch shows. Part of it is that I really miss sketch shows and the idea of having like an animated sketch show where lots of different animators would work on it so all of the sketches would have a different artistic style but it's mainly because 
When I was doing Elephant in the Room for Radio 4, with our first, the second series we did under lockdown, so we all did it remotely. But the first series, we did it in Mark Watson's kitchen. <laughs> for reasons but we all just sat around his kitchen table and because we were writing the script for Sarah Millican we'd often because you're writing for her voice we'd often end up reading the jokes in her voice and when we were doing this Jess Foster who was with me just went but I never done it <laughs> and me and her were the only ones who got it and we just started shouting I'm the Vincent murder honey I've never done it Mr Hoppy <laughs> There's some nice men called Giander and they proved I've never done it. So we started doing the voice of, oh, what's it? I've forgotten his name. What's his name? He's a meat, I'm a meat safe murderer, only i never done it. Ivan Dobsky. I'm Ivan Dobsky, I'm a meat safe murderer, only i never done it. So the whole point of Ivan Dobsky is at the start of every sketch, he is getting parole from prison where he's been stuck since the 70s. I mean, this was made in the late 90s, so he's been stuck there for like 20, 25 years <laughs> for a crime he never committed. He's been cleared. So they give him all of his like really 70s things back and they also give him a load of compensation money and in every sketch he because he's like a child he has got like the mind of a small child and he gets conned out of his compensation money and in every sketch it turns out that his space hopper he's given when he leaves prison called Mr Hoppy actually is the meat safe murderer and his space hopper causes him to go on a killing spree killing the people who rob him of his compensation money and that is kind of the level of bleakness and grimness that would happen in pretty much every sketch there's another one that i occasionally will still quote on twitter which is clive the concept of every clive sketch is he's trudging home through these sort of bleak urban streets to the start of Lovely Head by Goldfrap, the whistling bit. They also made a big thing in this sketch of like really cool sort of late 90s music. So he'd be walking down the street. So he'd get into his flat and his wife, who just looked exhausted and miserable, would go, Clive, you told me you were going out for cigarettes. That was five days ago. Where have you been? And he would start sweating and would start lying very obviously. And the lie would always turn out to be like the plot of a film. At one point, it was the plot to Hotel California, <laughs> the song. And he would get caught out and his wife would ask what he'd really be doing. And it would be something awful. The one that I always remember is spit roasting a King Charles Spaniel with your dad. It was the thing that he'd really been doing for five days. So, yeah, it was bleak and it was very, very sort of grim comedy. But I remember liking a lot of it it was one of the first things that was really sort of starting to kick back against Blairism and I think it was before Iraq happened so back when people were more kicking against the sort of the neoliberal treatment of Britain as a whole rather than the war that everybody hated yeah there was one about privatizing the fire service with Icarus and I think that was before the it crowd did the oh eight nine eight Again, that had like Icarus had like a really long phone number that nobody could phone in time before their houses burned down. So I sort of chose it because it's one of those sort of late 90s comedies that maybe sort of people don't think quite so much because this is always the way when we're talking about comedy and we'll talk, we'll talk about, oh, it's not how it used to be.
used to be people sort of just sort of cherry pick the things that really lasted things that really worked like the office and there were like so many things that were not like that at all and maybe didn't last as much and also I really miss sketch shows we need sketch shows back because they're really good I don't know who was working on monkey dust but I've got a feeling it's probably a few people who did really well out of it because that's how sketch works it's sketch comedy is like such a good training ground for comedy writers and that's one of the reasons why ghosts is so good bbc's ghost is so good because it's coming from a bunch of sketch writers and that's why they're able to write a really good ensemble narrative comedy where there's always like four threads going up they've got 10 main characters in that show and everyone's got something to do because they are used to writing so tightly in sort of sketch format so yeah i miss sketch shows well i think i mean you mentioned that it hasn't really been remembered you know that it's kind of like slipped from people's memories a bit and i think the reason is i mean first of all i had no idea it actually ran for three series i've forgotten mm. that but it did come in straight after chris morris did blue jam which the whole point mm. of that was that he was trying to do something that was completely unlike what he'd done because he's had such a bad time making brass eye and so on that we thought well why don't i just play records on radio one in the middle of the night and go insane between them it was basically what happened but i think people were just trying to copy that you know thinking all mm. we need to do is be dark and yet one of the things i loved about blue jam was a lot of it's silly there's very dry things in it, like the monologue about Rothko the dog which a lot of that is quite grotesque but because of the bored way he relates it that doesn't come across and that's why when they did the film of it that didn't really work but I think Monkey Dust was a little bit of a cut above all the other imitators mm. and even though I will say that the use of music in this is kind of a direct lift from Blue Jam although they did choose their own artistry they didn't just replicate it but it had more going for it and I didn't realise I actually have the DVD of Series 1 I don't know if the other side ah. came out with a charity shop sticker still on it which I don't think I ever got round to watching but I watched it again and found it uneven but with a lot of genuinely good things in it and I also like the way it was different animators for each yeah. sketch as if they were you know they weren't just drawing someone's words it was like they were part of the process they yeah. were people with their own identities I think that really helped it and there were great things like there's a series of running sketch with David Bedeal apparently voicing himself like <laughs> being ordered to do things like rescue oil tankers and so on because people just assume David Padil can do that <laughs> the only thing that really kind of I mean there are a couple of things in it that I don't think would really really play now there's a recurring character who's grooming children over the internet yes which that's bleak I think at the time that would have been considered acceptable mm. not to laugh at if you see what I mean but you know as a kind of an area that was considered appropriate to yeah. make jokes with i don't think it would be now but for me the only real problem was a lot of sketches kind of almost say what's going to happen in them from the outset mm. i don't know that was more the style of the time but that kind of feels like it undermines a little bit now but like i say there is some tremendous stuff in there although i did find out that a couple of people blocked their music from being on the dvd oh. i say it wasn't a rights thing it was actually refused by their management one of them was cliff richard which i think is pretty yeah. understandable yeah. The other one was David Gray, which is interesting because I don't think he's necessarily, you know, somebody you take a dim view. I think the pinnacle of that, of the, sort of the use of music, is Ivan Dobsky at the end of the first series going on an absolute rampage to Sunrise by Pulp. The last three minutes of that song is just a crescendo and it's he, he's created a space hopper out of the skin of the prison guards 
and is hopping to this like huge crescendo just covered in blood it's something to behold (laughs) the other thing i think really works in its favor is that ironically for a show that is quite bleak quite a lot and has its own very kind of off-kilter style it is honest about what it is it's not i felt a lot of things around that time were kind of trying to it was a bit of a nathan barley thing we tried to alienate Mm. everyone else almost as if to say we've heard of this you haven't and what it made me think of was was a bit of a gold rush for you know the early internet animators where you know something they've done to go viral and suddenly they're doing continuity links on bbc2 and so on or adverts but the thing was you were like an elderly couple watching coronation street and you got this quite aggressive abstract flash animation coming (laughs) at you that would feel a little as if they were trying to agitate you or ridicule you almost whereas monkey dust i think you know it is what it is Mm. if people stumbled across it they might think oh this is interesting rather than i am confused and frightened and must go to bed Yeah, and it made no... So the whole concept was, this is Britain after dark. So that was the start of every... In the intro sequence, it was like... It was a Britain that was quite nice. And then the sun went down and everything went to shit. So it is sort of separating itself. It is saying right at the start, there are good things in this world, but this is about the horrible shit. Come with us. The sun has gone down. Let's look at some bleak things. But there are a lot of in amongst that, a lot of quite, I don't want to use the word relatable, but characters that you can recognise as people mm-hmm. from your real life that, you know, you maybe didn't want to express an opinion on. Like, there's the yuppies that discuss things in the dinner terms party. they don't care about. Like, isn't there one where the one who's not one of them, which footballer is it he's met and had this, you know, beautiful experience with, and they get it all oh, yeah. wrong and ignore yeah. him when he corrects them. As I mentioned, there is Alex the relationship-seeking girl, which, on paper, that is something that could have gone a very bad way Mm. but the whole point is that it's flash decisions by her it's all in her head Mm. and it's aggressively so and it worked in an inoffensive way i mean that's the whole point of sketches like some of them work and some of them don't work as well and with some of them some people will like them and with others others are gonna you know people are gonna like different things about it and that's the whole joy of sketch that is literally sketchy Okay, well, these links are proving pretty easy today because, again, although we're moving to a more conventional style of animation for your next choice, rumours abounded that something to do with this wasn't that far removed from Monkey Dust at all. Hey, look! A Dungeons and Dragons ride! Wow! Neat! Give me a break. Barbarian, magician, thief, cavalier, and acrobat. Who was that? That was Venger, the force of evil. I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. 
okay, if you're a certain age, you'll immediately recognise that as a spoken intro to Dungeons and Dragons, the animated series based on the role-playing game. But Gabby, there's a specific thing about it that didn't actually happen that you wanted to discuss. Dungeons and Dragons cartoon was my introduction to fandom. Not in the 80s. I watched it in the 80s. I was a little bit scared of it in the 80s. But in the early noughties, when like all of the sort of the 80s nostalgia was really cool for like us Gen X's and older millennials. I got the DVD box set and that was really, I think it had been done sort of in conjunction with the fandom because it was like really, really fan friendly. It had lots of additional things. It had like links. It was one of those DVDs that was sort of like a little bit interactive. It had like links to fan forums and things. It had a fan commentary by a couple of people, one of which has become a friend of mine. And yes, it also had like a PDF or whatever Naughty's DVD version of it though was of the final script so technically those kids never got home because they cancelled the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon in the middle of series three but a script for the final episode was written and it was sort of out there and the whole fandom was very very excited about it so when I sort of got into the fandom my first ever online fandom it was just like forums like the proper sort of old school fan forums where you just like have a chat so everybody knew about the script for Requiem and we sort of treated it as canon so quite a few people including myself wrote fan fiction that was based after the Requiem script I think part of the reason that everyone liked it is it's really fucking cool (laughs) it is an incredibly good ending it's got twists in it so we find out these twists that were never part of the cartoon because they never made it. So the twists to the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon lore are Benjur was always redeemable. The whole point of them coming into the world was to redeem Benjur, the baddie. Benjur is Dungeon Master's son. He's been corrupted by... So they've got like a big, big bad, bigger bad than Benjur, who we do see in the cartoon, who I think is called something like he who must not... No name or he who must not be named. He is basically he's a big not a whirlpool what's a whirlpool in the sky it's like he's like a big sort of cyclone yeah like a big vortex of evil who sort of moves around and there's an episode that does exist where the kids almost sort of have to very temporarily team up with Venger against this vortex of pure evil because even Venger is fucking terrified of him basically wherever he goes just the world is it just leaves nothing ruined in its wake so very very briefly they do team up in the cartoon with Venger to stand up against this ultimate evil. He has been corrupted by this ultimate evil. They have to bring Venger back. That's the whole reason that they came there in the first place. Dungeon Master brought them there to save his son, which we find out all about in the last episode. There is a big moment of redemption because Eric is my favourite character in that he was my introduction to fandom. He was one of my first fandom crushes. He is utterly redeemable and that's something that I love about it. Even though it is a one of these Saturday morning shows where there is a reset, you can tell where you are in the arc from what Eric's like because he does slowly get redeemed. He does have character development as does Presto Presto is the other one with character development because he becomes much more self-assured and he becomes much more magically powerful and so this finale makes use of the fact that Presto is more magically powerful these days makes use of the fact that Eric has been on a redemption arc there's a wonderful moment they all sort of working together and they're able to bring Venger back 
from his corruption and they go home. As you know, they don't go home. You see that they're being given the option to go home. Basically, Dungeon Master said, because in the cartoon, they always see home. The portal opens up and then it gets whisked away from them. <laughs> and they never make it. In this one, basically, they're looking at it and the Dungeon Master goes, there you go. You're free to go. This is not going to close now. You can leave if you want or you can stay and keep fighting. And that's what we are left with in the canon. And it's really good. <laughs> I've read it. It's excellent. Some people have made fan videos of it because the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon fandom is tiny, but it's really committed. <laughs> there were only about 20 of us on that forum and we were very into it. And a lot of us are sort of artists as well. So the person who is on the fan commentary of the DVD is a lady called Faye Keenan, who is now an author. Another one of the fandom who was on those message boards is actually Rihanna Pratchett. I didn't realise at the time. So yeah, quite a few of us have sort of gone on to be sort of like writers for money <laughs> and stuff out of that quite small fandom. But I got so into that fandom. That was like my first experience of reading and writing fanfic. My first experience of like doing commissions of doing like fan exchanges where you'd write, those of us who could write <laughs> would write a fanfic and those of us who could draw would do drawings and we sort of exchanged them. And it was just really, really lovely. And I'm still in touch with quite a few of the people who I met through that fandom. So yeah, it's important to me because it's a really good script, but it also is part of this very, very, very small fandom that meant a lot to me. Well, there's two very interesting things about the story behind it as well. Firstly, I remember when I was at school, I was maybe, maybe 18 months too old to like Dungeons and Dragons. It was, you know, it reached that stage where I wasn't going to be watching a cartoon with a unicorn mm. called Uni in it. You know, that, yeah. that felt like it was for kids. That was the general feeling in school, you know, because I just started secondary school and right, I mean, yeah. we did call the deputy head the Dungeon Master because he looked quite like him. <laughs> but I do remember rumours going around and this goes back to the thing Mitch Ben always brings up about how did rumours work in those days how did these things get out and circulate mm. to this extent I remember people saying in school there was this unmade final episode of Dungeons and Dragons where they all got slaughtered in horrific ways oh. trying to get back <laughs> and for years that was the belief and so obviously right. it wasn't anything like that you know it'd been exaggerated in the telling but how did that story get out because the other thing I found out you might correct me on the fine details on this because obviously you know a great deal more about Dungeons and Dragons fandom but as far as I can tell it was one of the writers Michael Reeves just pitched the idea of having the final episode which as he said himself wasn't the done thing then he was suggesting a completely new thing because cartoons didn't finish like that I mean famously Richard Herring always talks about the fact that there was a cartoon called Bailey's Comets about a roller skating race that never ended you know they never got to the end of it it just you know because these things got repeated again again it didn't make any sense and he knew it was an out there idea and you know there were discussions about it and it was ultimately decided it's a bit too radical we can't really do it but the thing was he then he used to self-publish limited run books of his scripts and he included this in one of them and nobody noticed but at the same time (laughs) you got this wild rumour going around it is out there as well yes and both of those things how do they coexist in the world I don't know well in the scripts obviously they don't get horribly slaughtered but you think that Hank is dead for about five minutes and Eric does get quite badly injured so I don't know if that's sort of you know how like Ghostwatch turned into Michael Parkinson was dripping in blood and had glowing red eyes maybe it sort of turned into that it is I mean a lot of these sort of 80s Saturday morning cartoons when I say dark I don't mean monkey dust up when I say dark I mean it was darker in tone it had that sort of the fantasy the 80s sort of slightly dark slightly scary fantasy it had that whole sort of dark crystal labyrinth 
different kind of air to it. And it was, I was a little bit scared by it as a kid. So I don't know if maybe they sort of went with that whole, oh, it's a sort of a slightly sort of darker, scarier fantasy. Maybe they'd go with that. But how did that story get out? I just cannot figure out. The only thing I can think of is there has always been the thing about every so often a newspaper or the BBC website run a story revealing that there was going to be a fifth Black Adder series called the Black Adder 5. Yeah. And Tony Robinson has just mentioned it for the first time ever. <laughs> now, I remember seeing that when Black Adder Goes Forth was on. I can't produce anything to quantify this, but I remember seeing that mentioned in an mm. interview with one of them, whether it was one of the cast or one of the writers, I don't know, in a newspaper. And I remember telling other people who remember me telling them about it. So I think it's just that. I think there are casual mentions in places. Mm. And these things somehow gather momentum like that. But yeah. like, I was saying to someone the other day, you know, Toy by David Bowie has just come out. Mm. And one of my friends was saying, he remembers me saying in the late 90s, you know, so this is even before Bowie Net and so on, that I had heard from somewhere that Bowie was planning to do an album of his old songs, but he was having trouble with his record label, about, mm. you know, his 60s songs. And obviously, that later say that to be true. And we cannot figure out how I would have known that yeah. at that time. <laughs> I, je- I cannot understand it. Ghosts. <laughs> That's the only explanation. Ghost whispered it to you. Sorry, I've been listening to a lot of Uncanny recently. <laughs> like, now my answer to anything unexplained is just, just ghosts. <laughs> it could have been the Dungeon Master. Maybe. <laughs> Okay, well, we're staying in a semi-dark world for your next choice, which is something that I know next to nothing about. So (laughs) let's just see what happens here. Out of the darkness, they came with a hateful will to destroy humanity. We fought long and hard, but now we are lost, for they have taken their evil war into our past. Traveling through time, they have sown corruption, unraveling the fabric of our history. Our last chance is to strike back, seize the time crystals, and turn their twisted weapon against them. The fight for survival has begun. Okay, that apparently is a less familiar opening narration from Time Splitters 2. Gabby, I like the sound of this. What is it? Oh my goodness. Time Splitters 2, I didn't actually own it. I've realised since talking about this, I never owned this game. This is a first-person shooter game that was around in the late 90s, early noughties. It was definitely for PlayStation because my friends had it on PlayStation. We all had a PlayStation at that point. Or was it a PlayStation 1? Anyway, we all had one of them each so it was just after I'd left uni and there was still a lot of us sort of hanging around some who'd just graduated we were doing like some of the jobs in Canterbury and stuff we were all doing like some plays together we we're doing some murder mystery plays together just a bunch of chums from uni just for fun basically because we were all doing like boring ass office jobs and we would meet up and we would play time splitters together and it was before obviously it was before internet gaming <laughs> but we sort of created this sort of proto internet gaming thing by literally Literally all bringing our TVs and our PlayStations to our friend's house. And he would just scart lead them all together because you could have like a four player split screen. At one point, there were 16 of us who just had four TVs and there were the big blocky TVs. Well, because it was like the early noughties that we'd just put all together and we just load all the games up at the same time. We'd all play together. So it is a little bit, maybe a little bit golden IE, but it's more ridiculous than that. I never actually played because I never owned it. I never actually played the narrative of the game. I only ever played the multiplayer version where you could have like death 
deathmatches and things like that. So the concept of it was it was a first person shooter game. You were in like lots of different time zones. So the time splitters thing is that you sort of going throughout different eras of time and there's a first person shootout for whatever reason. So there were lots of different game avatars that you could use from like lots of different eras of time. So I had a jester. That was me. I had either a jester or this sort of like Amazon woman. They were like future ones. So one of my friends always played a goldfish in a bowl and then the bowl made up the head of this robot. You could play like a 1920s gangster. So we all had favourite ones of these that we would play as we met up. And there was the ability to be invisible, but invisible like Predator. So you could just about see a sort of a blur where you were. There was also the ability to have one shot kill. There was also the ability to have the only weapons available to you were bricks. So this is what we play. <laughs> and we play it in the setting of there's a creepy abandoned hospital set that became our favourite because it had lots of places to hide. And we would spend all night going invisible and the only with a one shot kill and the only weapons available to us were bricks. So we were literally sneaking up behind one another and just twatting each other around the head. <laughs> And then you'd be dead. It was so much. I cannot underestimate how much fun it was. And I think this is something that you miss in online gaming of all being in the same room as it's happening. Because partially because you could look at other people's screens, like in the literal four TVs we had set up, you could take a look at somebody else's telly and see where they were, the ones who were still alive. And also just, just the fun of doing it while you were on the sofa with somebody else, they could call you all sorts of names and start hitting you <laughs> because you just snuck up behind them. It was so much fun. And it was obviously it's a time in my life that has passed now and that's fine. And it's also a time in technology that has completely passed now and it's just this sort of delightful microcosm of just being silly ourselves together with a computer game that was just so dumb but in a really good way. I mean, I'm sure that every sort of group of people who were students who could afford to have like a PlayStation or a an N64 or whatever it was at the time have got a game that was that game for them. With like one group of my friends, it was GoldenEye. With another group of friends, it was Mario Kart with Forever Falling Off the Rainbow Road. I'm sure like everyone's got like a game where that would be like, their, let's just have some drinks and just annoy each other game. But yeah, that was ours. Yeah, well, you mentioned Mario Kart, I really, really miss the days when everyone bring their wee wheel round to play Mario yes. Kart together, all in the same, laughing at each other. It's not the same online. I remember as well, I can't remember what this was called. Someone is going to tell me, but there was a PlayStation game where it was a martial arts game, but you actually, it sensed you doing the moves. I remember watching oh. my friends doing it and thinking, this is like a low budget remake of Crouching Tiger in the The PlayStation I, we had one of those, a PlayStation I, where, yeah, it just had silly games where it was sort of like video you but it was really confusing because it wasn't quite in sync with you so you'd be on a very slight delay with yourself well first of all I should say the thing just get out of the way that really struck me reading about Time Splitters 2 was the whole thing about it because the Time Splitters are aliens are going through history trying to change history so that humans don't win now as much as I love the final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that is that that was what the Omicrons are doing and there is even you know there are even similar time periods you know like the Prohibition era one and so on so somebody had been referring back to that but 
It also made me think, though, about... Obviously, you really enjoyed this, but quite often sequels to computer games and later video games generally aren't that good. Although I recently almost got hounded off Twitter for saying that I stand by this. The ZX Spectrum game School Days was one of the most addictive things <laughs> I've ever played. Back to School, which made the universe bigger and had a now very worrying cover of a schoolboy <laughs> vaulting over a fence and some schoolgirls running away. Which, you know, oh just makes it yeah. all the worse, yeah. but... The game itself was just, it was too big, it was too sprawling. But when I said, because I maintained that was one of the hugest disappointments of my childhood, that oh. game. But so many people came at me. I didn't think, I better never say it again, but I've just yeah. said it now, so there you go. But generally, actual direct sequels. I mean, mm. I know there are franchises that do essentially a different thing with each game, and they tend to go down well, but direct sequels often don't work. But this apparently did. Yeah, it did. I mean, as soon as you say that, my favourite game of all time is a sequel, Portal 2 is probably the best game ever made it's brilliant <laughs> i will go on and on and on about how much i love i've played portal 2 through so many times i'm sure everyone will agree with me that portal 2 is because portal the first portal was basically just a mod of half-life 2 so half-life 2 had this sort of mod available and it, and it basically spawned this what gets called walking simulators which are games where you're in the first person and you're wandering around the landscape and you are collecting clues to a narrative which is a a concept that I love and, and things like oh everybody gone to the rapture is an amazing game but it also spawned Portal which was fine but Portal 2 is absolutely amazing I mean, it's got J.K. Simmons in it it's got Stephen Merchant in it it takes you on this sort of deep dive through the ages through the whole lore of the game it has got twists and turns it's got allies becoming enemies it's got enemies becoming allies you form this beautiful friendship with a character to say who the friendship you forge with is kind of a spoiler but it's a really old game if you haven't played portal 2 you don't even have to have played portal 1 it's amazing it's so funny it's hilarious yeah as i say steve merchant that's probably the best character he's played <laughs> weekly <laughs> who is this small officious eyeball on a stick is absolutely brilliant and jk simmons you never see him he's the voice of a dead man coming through the speakers and you hear him getting progressively sicker and more bitter as the game progresses as he's sort of speaking to you from beyond the grave it's marvelous <laughs> i think Stephen merchant's best character is when he was steve the student on scott mills's show <laughs> Radio One. i don't know if he'll appreciate being reminded of that now <laughs> But yeah, that's a far cry from, you know, you look back at the Spectrum games that had, in inverted commas, people in now. <laughs> you know, the, things like Wham! The Music Box, that music simulator, and Bob's Full House with the graphic of Bob Monkhouse. And, of course, the one that I still can't believe existed, Samantha Fox Strip Poker. Oh, God. See, I wasn't raised by hippies, so I did have a ZX Spectrum, but we were only allowed educational games. So we had Mr. T's Number Time. <laughs> And we had Survivor. Yeah, so we were allowed those. Funnily enough, apparently in Time Splitters 2, there are old computer games, like licensed versions hidden away in that you can find consoles and cartridges and so on. Oh, cool. and, like play, I don't know, Boulder Dash or something <gasps> instead of playing Time Splitters 2. <laughs> what a great idea that is. Yeah. So have you ever revisited it for old times? Because there must be emulators online now, surely. I haven't, no, because it would be a sad echo of it now, doing it in my 40s what was just really fun to do because of just because of the company that I did it with in my 20s it wouldn't be the same on a computer and not on a rented telly uh, that we'd carried to somebody else's living room 
Okay, well, you've given me yet another great link to your next choice, because I think, although, you know, you're sad to leave those days behind, from what you've said, your next choice is something that gave you very happy memories as a replacement for it, sort of. Tomorrow's Groundhog's Day, but... I've got my own favorite animal. Really? Yes. Really? What's your favorite animal? I like monkeys. Oh. Lots and lots of monkeys. I see. Dozens upon dozens of monkeys. Right, right. Monkeys. So uh, what song are we going to hear now? We're going to hear the song One Dozen Monkeys. Okay, that is very evidently They Might Be Giants, very evidently John and John talking, but it's quite possible. A lot of their fans might not know what that is. So, Gabby, fill us in. Okay, so this is They Might Be Giants family podcast for kids, for parents, for you. We don't know how we found this because we were watching it a few years after it came out. I think they made it in like the mid noughties. We were watching this with our kids when they were preschool. So probably a, we were probably watching it around 2010 and we don't know how we found it. I mean, me and my husband, we really love them out giants generally, but somehow we stumbled upon this show. So they might be giants made a preschoolers show and put them all on YouTube. I'm not really sure why they, I think what I love about They Might Be Giants is they just do whatever the fuck they like <laughs> which is delightful they've been going since the 80s they're showing no sign of stopping they like writing their silly songs about whatever they fancy writing a song about that day are there any bands that just love writing songs as much as they do and they will just yeah I'm going to write a song about the different fractions of George Washington's head and it's going to be 20 seconds long and it's going to be ridiculous yeah let's write it and let's put it out the whole sort of dial a song thing and they're still going and they're still writing this wonderful stuff so yeah they actually made more than three children's albums because they made no as well but no doesn't really feature in this show what features in this show are mainly here come the abcs here come the one two threes and here comes science which are sort of preschool literacy and numeracy and maybe sort of key stage one level science sort of teaching you about photosynthesis they've got a song about photosynthesis Photosynthesis, ah, photosynthesis, ah. It's teaching kids, yes, yeah, sort of basic literacy, numeracy, and also little science lessons. The links are done by John and John using knitted puppets knitted by Robin Goldwasser, who is John Flansberg's wife and is also a musician in her own right. And if you listen to a Them Average Dance song and you hear a woman singing, it's probably going to be Robin. So she made these puppet Johns. They're apparently huge. So <laughs> The hand puppets of the Johns, the Johns are just larking about, having like a little bit of a chat with each other, and they will introduce two music videos. So the show is maybe 15 minutes long, it's a bit of a chat, it's a music video, it's a bit of a chat, it's a music video, it's one final bit of a chat. Goodbye, kids. And the music videos are delightful. So yeah, we're showing these to our kids, and our kids really love it. Like, Eats Everything was one of my son's favourites. I can't remember what the point of Eats Everything was. It was mostly to do with like food stuff that begins with each letter of the alphabet but E eats everything but it's also sort of to do with the fact that E the letter E could like change the sound of other letters I think but he really really liked that because the letter E is a lowercase E that's going around like Pac-Man eating all the different foods and also eating all the different letters they're different so the music videos get like monkey dust are done they've got different animators on board to make different videos so some of them are stop motion some of them are cartoon 
cartoons. Some of them are sort of like, I think there's a couple of puppet ones. Yeah, they're just delightful. They made a different version of, so they famously did Why Does the Sun Shine, which I think is a cover version. The sun is a mass of a Yeah, I believe it's from some ancient children's educational film shown in schools in America. And to be honest, they always mind that stuff quite a lot from very early on. It's just, it wasn't until later they thought of actually doing stuff for kids. Yeah, yeah. So I think they did the sun as a masculine condenser gas. And then they found out that that's scientifically wrong. So they remade it. They made a version. They wrote a new song called The Sun is a Miasma of Incandescent Plasma, in which (laughs) they made fun of themselves for getting it wrong. And the whole point of The Sun is a Miasma of Incandescent Plasma is we got it wrong in that last song. But that's fine because science isn't a set thing. Science is a constantly changing consensus that comes out of studies. And that's fine. That We thought it was a massive incandescent gas. Now we know that it's not. This information may change in the future and that's all fine. And what a beautiful song <laughs> to say, we got it wrong, but that's science for you. It's all stuff like that. It is really, really sweet. And we used to really, really enjoy watching it as a family when our kids were like CBBS age. I think it's just a nice little thing that my children will now be going, oh, yeah, you remember that They Might Be Giants show? And their friends will be going, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, the They Might Be Giants show. Where they sang a song about, like, six is a nine on its head. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, with the song with the bloodmobile, where, there's, there's the, where, your blood is, where your blood is a delivery service. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, looking back at this now, because like you say, it was originally from kind of the mid to late noughties. Mm. It's how, I mean, they were always ahead of the curve on technology. I mean, we have had as a choice on Looks of Familiar before, the Dial-A-Song service that they had. And I remember, I think the first record I actually had by them was Birdhouse in Your Soul. Mm. But I'd heard them before on, nice to give her a quick mention, Janice Long used to play them a lot. John Peel never really did, but people Mm. like Jonathan Ross were really behind them, Chris Morris very early on. I remember buying Birdhouse in Your Soul and reading the back of it in McDonald's in the McDonald's across the road from our price and seeing the mention of Dial-A-Song and yeah. to me at the time that seemed incredibly complex and an yeah. enormous feat to carry off and then you know you fast forward a bit the doing of not just a podcast but a video podcast before that was really a thing I mean yeah. thinking back to that time that's when the Collings and Herring podcast was around and I won't say too much because this may be coming up in the future show but I quite often think had they done that now they would be ruling the world <laughs> you know it's a consistently funny and inventive thing every week that you know we will be making headlines of some of the stuff they said if they transfer that now to some sort of was happening in the news but they might be giants they were jumping head first into this untested medium yeah. doing it as a video thing as well as audio and it probably connected with a very small audience at the time but like you say it clearly made the impression that it needed to yeah it definitely did it's a genuinely good and i think it's still up there if you've got little kids find it because it's i think it's still up there it is a genuinely good preschool tv show but it's a preschool tv show that sort of hangs on you knowing that these two men are in a band together who at the time were in like their late 40s and that they're just sort of larking about it's really really good and this was at a time sort of a lot of creationism was starting to bubble up in certainly in america and their american and a lot of their science songs were i say anti-creationist they're pro-science but a lot of them sort of mentioned creationism in order 
order to debunk it. <laughs> I, 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 I am a paleontologist and science is real. Put it to the test is another really good song about science and the scientific process. So there are songs that aren't just teaching kids science lessons. There are songs that are about this is why we can trust science where we can't trust myth. And just sort of putting that sort of across sort of politically. I do like how sort of they're sort of soft, but say they're soft political. One of the best political lines that I know of in the song is the They Might Be Giants song, which is you can't shake the devil's hand and say you're only kidding. That yeah. line sticks in my head just all the time whenever we look at all these feckless fucks that we've got in our government, that they've got in their various strands of government who do this whole sort of cheeky, nod, nod, wink, wink kind of racism that, oh, you're offended like that. Well, that was a joke. And your racist friend is much older than that. I can't tell you when your racist friend was written. I'm thinking probably the 90s. It was 1990. It was on floor. The same album as their house in your soul. It was written in 1990 and it is still so pertinent. You can't shake the devil's hand and say you're only kidding if you say something racist you can't then say oh i was just joking about racism no you said something fucking racist you shook the devil's hand yeah i love her yeah that's sort of the soft jokey way that they are very political absolutely i mean there are things like i'm not surprised to hear that they are capable of conveying those sort of really quite heavy messages and arguments to children Mm. because what i always really liked about them was a lot of their songs are about kind of an impulse or a feeling but through a Mm. weird filter like one of my favorite was always why must i be sad you know which is it's some good character of somebody who misunderstands alice cooper and thinks he's like a bob dylan figure (laughs) speaking to him personally but it really connects with you know like a base thing you've got where you think only X and Y understands me as a teenager when you know obviously it doesn't you pick the wrong thing but everybody's kind of felt that and things like I'm never quite been sure what I palindrome I is about (laughs) when I have been in positions in my life where I felt like everything is standing still and you just can't make any progress I have often got you know that chorus and I am the snakehead eating the head on the opposite side going round in my ironically going round in my head so they were so good at doing things like that so this does not surprise me in the slightest yeah it is a really 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 delightful little show that they have probably got very little revenue from that they very clearly did as an act of love but i think that so much as, as i say getting back to it what i love about them is they do what the fuck they like and i'm sure that almost everything that they do is just for the sheer love of it like writing they were commissioned to write so Coraline, the form of the neil gaiman book was meant to be a musical and they might be just for commissioned to write the music to it that's why in the middle of Coraline randomly the dad starts singing in the voice of John Lennon <laughs> Like, he sings, like, a 60-second long They Might Be Giants song, and that's all we hear about it, in the voice of John Lennon, and that's it. But they wrote, like, a whole musical of it, and apparently, ever since, they've been slotting in the Coraline songs that they've sort of tweaked. They've been sort of slotting them into albums and things. Stuff like that. I love it. I want them to write an opera. Yeah, I want them to write just a nonsense opera. You know, those men are in their 60s, and I cannot wait to see what they're going to do next. Well, going back to what you were saying about the relevance of your racist friends and some of the people are stuck with, I would quite like Twitter to introduce a feature where when somebody tweets something unnecessary or unpleasant or just <laughs> stating rubbish for the sake of it, that I should be allowed to think starts playing. Because, again, <laughs> you know, 20 odd years before we're confronted with all 
all of this. There they are singing about people who think I should be allowed to blurt the merest idea if my random whim one occurs to me. I mean, they wrote When Will You Die? I listened to When Will You Die? And I was positive that was a protest song about Donald Trump. That was written years and years and years before Donald Trump became president. And yet you listen to it now you think, oh, they're being so rude about Donald Trump. It's like, no, it's not. (laughs) It just happens to be pertinent. Okay, well, moving into your last choice, I don't have that much experience of this myself, so I can't say very much about it, but just take it as read that in lieu of that, I'm being rude about Donald Trump. So that was Mel C's cover of I Want Candy by the Strange Loves <laughs> in the 60s. And not by well, well, like you thought. I'm not talking any sense at all. Gabby, why have I put I Want Candy there? So my last choice is a makeup called Hard Candy Nail Varnish, which in the mid-90s, if you were sort of into Indian grunge like I was, was like something that was really, you really sort of wanted to get it. I seem to remember it was prohibitively expensive to teenagers, which was weird because it was marketed towards teenagers, which might be why it didn't do so well. It was just nail varnish. It wasn't particularly good nail varnish. I did buy one bottle in the sale because it was prohibitively expensive if you were a teenager. And it was just a really yucky, pale green. It was sort of like undercoat green. But it was like, it was an aspirational makeup to have if you were like one of those girls who like me, into like your REM and your hole and all of that stuff. It was like, yeah, aspirational nail varnish. And one of the things was you also got like a little plastic ring that was in the same shade as your nail varnish. All I remember is just constantly being told in like teen magazines that you wanted to get hard candy nail varnish. And it was a really cool name for nail varnish. It was like, yeah, my nails are like hard sweet. <laughs> and yeah it was one of those cool things it had a cool name it was for cool girls but I couldn't afford it I'd always end up getting I did wear a lot of nail varnish around that kind of age when I was sort of a grunge girl sort of like a proto emo <laughs> I was sort of goth light I wasn't gothy enough to be like a full goth I was goth light I would have made a really good emo if I'd have been like 10 years younger so I was like into all the purple nail varnish all the glittery black nail varnish that I just got it from like a little goth shop you know how there's always like a little shop that sells like joss sticks like in the 90s there was always a little shop that sold joss sticks and pewter medallions and velvet hats <laughs> and, and those tins with cannabis leaves on them that were yes. just they were just tins that's all they were yeah and black sparkly nail varnish and things like that so i just get that for like two pounds but i did have like my one precious bottle of disgusting color hard candy nail varnish that i purely bought because it was hard candy it's gone nowhere now it's not like rimmel where rimmel's doing fine it's not like all these sort of others of cheap teen makeup brands that were around at the time and now they're still basically fine because the whole point of it was you could buy some makeup for two pounds hard candy is nowhere now i'm sure it's because they were like aspirational nail varnish aimed at people who could not afford your nail varnish 
<laughs> well, that ties in kind of neatly with the origin story because apparently it was the founder had just mixed the colour of nail varnish literally to go with her sandals, which is kind of weird oh, blue God. thing because all their colours was that sort of what I would call the virgin cola ad colour scheme that you got <laughs> in the mid to late 90s. Where it's these weird, ill-matching shades yeah. of primary colours. You no, know, kind of like the T-shirts that you get in Top Man around that point where it's like, say, <laughs> a really kind of slightly dull orange and then the yeah. collar and the cuffs would be green or whatever. Yeah. And it was kind of like that. But apparently, somehow, Alicia Silverstone got hold of some. And when she's appearing on David Letterman's show, plugging Clueless, he mm. was basically like, what is going on with your nails? Right. And it all, it all started from there. Oh, yeah. But I, I also remember <laughs> they did adverts where, like you mentioned, the hard candy thing. They were really playing on that and that kind of... Do you remember there was... I imagine it was an incredibly patronising thing. It was that erotica for women kind of idea around uh, that time. Yeah, you know, it's got like sort of women clutching a bottle like in a really in an aggressive way rather than a suggestive way. Yes. And it's all founded on that sort of thing and that kind of like fell from favour a bit not that long afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, it all felt like it was sort of for me the whole sort of the hard candy name it was like kind of like we'd be the sort of girls who'd you'd get like a necklace made of you know the little Dolly Sweets necklaces and wristwatches they were really delicious I really like those chalky sweets so I just eat it (laughs) (laughs) I'd just be left with like this sad elastic around my neck it's like hey my neck because it was too tasty I used to be baffled by the ones that were watches with a watch dial on. Yeah, well, that was your treat at the end. You'd very slowly chew your way around the watch strap, and then you'd have a lovely big sweet at the end, a lovely big sweet with a fake time on it. So you... <laughs> to round off your delicious snack that made your wrist smell and also tasted slightly of sweat. I imagine that hard candy nail varnish itself was probably quite toxic, so... Oh, almost I hope certainly. You didn't do that. It looked like the sort of nail varnish that, yeah, the Toxic Crusader, it was like Toxic Crusader green. It looked like somebody had spilled some nuclear goo on my hands. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Did it glow in the dark? It would have been really cool if it had glowed in the dark. It was the kind of green that looked like it's going to glow in the dark it did not glow in the dark it would be amazing if it was uv nail but i would buy uv nail varnish now for like over the sort of price i should pay for nail varnish that would be really if somebody invented does it exist does uv nail varnish exist i want to get some now find some for me If you're listening and you make UV nail varnish, I will be your influencer. I've got 25,000 followers on Twitter. I will be, that will be what I influence. Just send me some for free. (laughs) Then guess what? You get loads of reply guys trying it. Well, I'm happy to talk to a reply guy if he has UV nail varnish to give me for free. the price you have to pay to speak to someone as awesome as I am you have to invent UV nail varnish and send me some so would you wear it now no because I'm a mum now because I write as well it's like my nails are you know in the Lord of the Rings when they do a close-up of Elijah Wood's hands and their his nails are just like these horrible bitten down little stumps that's my hands like the only time my nails grew was during the first three months of the pandemic when I was terrified to touch my face and stop biting my nails and as soon as 
I realised that COVID was airborne, I started chewing my nails off again. So there is absolutely no point in me wearing any nail wash apart from in the summertime, I'll pop some on my toes for when I'm wearing sandals. But then I've got like the same bottle of Asta's own brand. Again, purple because I'm a goth. I'm, well, I'm a goth light. I'm an overgrown emo. I wear like sort of dark purple. Mm. <laughs> my chemical romance you sounded more like an influencer by the second to be honest yeah. <laughs> but yeah so if you do have any uni nail varnish I will wear some during the summer um, <laughs> being the 42 year old influencer light that I am so go on you want to be an influencer can, can post a tweet now about UV nail varnish oh god <laughs> see this is the thing about twitter i can sit and have a thing (laughs) (laughs) this is why i write and i don't speak i don't know i'd probably post a picture of my bitten down stumpy hand (laughs) and oh people are dropping things upstairs post a picture of my bitten down stumpy little hands and i don't know i'd probably say something terrible i know maybe i'd be give me the finger and it would be like ah boris johnson you can see me giving the finger in the dark (laughs) i don't know and this is why i don't do videos Well, we started with an insult towards him, we've ended with one, and we threw a few in throughout, so I think you can tell when we're recording this. Yeah, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully by the time you're listening to this, it'll be like, who's that? Oh, yeah, he was that guy who used to be Prime Minister, and (laughs) was then put in a wicker model of himself, and rolled into the sea. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not even a sketch of monkey dust. It's been brilliant. Thank you. You should do a tweet about UV nail varnish without any context now, as if you pick up on it when this comes out. So. <laughs> you can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.